Today we're starting a brand new teaching series, and it's called Ten Words, uh, the grand sweep of God's big story from cover to cover in just ten words. Did you know that that was even possible? Do you think that you would be able to do it? For instance, I know that there are some of you who are listening to me today, and you have learned a lot about the Bible. I mean, you have been studying the Bible for a long, long time, and you know all kinds of things about the Bible. You know facts, truth, trivia, theology, timelines, names, dates, places that are in this book. But if you had to close the book, and in three minutes or less, explain to someone just a summary what this story is about, how confident would you feel doing that? I, I mean, if, if you watched a movie Friday night and somebody said to you, oh, you watched it, uh, what was it about? You'd be able to do it. You'd be able to boil it down and say, well, it was about this. It was about this guy and he went on a journey and, and he met someone or whatever it was. You'd be able to do it. How about the Bible? The story that is in the Bible is the most important message in the world. If your back was to the wall and if you had to close the book and just, in short, say what the story is, would you be able to do it? Now, what I'd like to do, if you will plug in with me for the next couple of months, is help you to boil down big picture God's big story and learn how to tell it to someone else in just 10 words. And let me tell you why I think this is incredibly important. I I don't think that this is just a matter about getting a better perspective on the Bible. This isn't just about Bible education, so you'll have a better handle on the book. I think this is about getting a better perspective on life. The reason why we need, especially now, to have a firm hold on God's big story is because sometimes our little story, the one we're living, at least in the short run, may not always make perfect sense. It may not always seem fair. It may not even seem worth it. But when we're going through tough times especially, it's very important to have a greater sense of what my story, my little slice of it, fits into. Let me try to give you an example. In the 1940s, my grandfather served in the United States Army, and he was sent off to Europe to fight in World War II. Now, I want you to try to imagine a soldier serving in the United States Army in Europe in World War II, who wakes up one day in the middle of that war, but he doesn't know or can't remember how he got there. All he knows is his part of the story that he's living in. And he knows that he's living in mud every single day, and he knows that he's got a rifle in his hands. And every single day there's somebody on the other side of the field that is trying to kill them as they are trying to move forward and take ground. If if all he knew was that little part of the story, I think that soldier would quickly conclude, this is a terrible story. And I want to get out of this story as fast as I possibly can. The only way that fighting through that would ever be worth it is if he understood the big story into which his experience fit into, the great evil that had led up to this terrible conflict and what the point was in the struggle and who else was in this fight with them and the hope of freedom for the world and a new day that would come out of all this sacrifice. You see, whatever it is, when you're moving through a chapter of life that is incredibly hard to keep pressing on, it is critical to have a clear understanding of the greater story that this chapter I'm going through right now 
is a part of. The Bible makes a point time and time again. You need to keep clear in your mind the big story, where all this came from, where all this is going, and who else is on your side. And how all we're going through right now, even when it's really, really hard, makes sense in light of where all this is going. This is the reason, you see, why as Christians we can have such hope and suffering. You ever read that and you think, I know that's possible. I just have a hard time experiencing How is it possible for Christians to have such hope and suffering, such joy and trials, such perseverance in the midst of hardship? Precisely because we know the big story. And therefore, it makes a lot more sense how this little chapter fits into that. So whether you're brand new to the Bible or you've been studying this book for a long, long time, I want to encourage you to know and to live and to tell God's big story with hope. And to be able to do it in just 10 words. In fact, I would make the case that even if you knew absolutely nothing about the Bible, but you picked it up and started reading it from the very beginning, and if you paid close attention, it would be possible for you in the first three chapters of the book to understand the basic points of the entire Bible story. You would know the 10 words that form the outline of the entire Bible and the following 47 chapters and the following 65 books after that merely fill in the details. The outline of the entire story of God's big story is in the first three chapters of the book. So, if you have your Bible this morning, if you have your Bible at home, and I hope you do, that's kind of the point, take it out and turn it open to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, for those of you who get frustrated when we study together out of Habakkuk or Lamentations or Philemon or some other hard-to-locate place in the Bible, for the next two months, literally, it does not get any easier. All you got to do is take the book out, turn to the first page of the first book, and start reading. You can put a bookmark there because we're going to be there for the next two months. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So even if you have never heard this story before, you would learn on this very first page of the Bible that there is an unbelievably awesome and powerful God who created everything in the heavens and the earth. Now, what follows that we're going to read, it doesn't read like a textbook, but written in highly poetic language and rich imagery, it tells the story of the origins of everything that exists in the universe. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is the summary. The summary is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as we continue reading in verse 2, these are the details describing in poetic terms how all that unfolded. So verse 2 continues. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Say after me, good, good. Yeah, yeah, this isn't, yeah, rhetorical. Say good. We might do that again. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Say the first day. day. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Say the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Say good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Say good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Say the third day. Now, if I can pause just here, it may be helpful for you to notice a pattern as Genesis 1 walks us through the six days of creation. The first three days uh, describe the realms of creation that God has made. So in day one, he creates a realm of light and darkness. Day two, the realm of sky and sea. The third day, the realm of dry land. Now, what's going to follow in the next three days is he creates the inhabitants of these realms. And so on the fourth day, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. That is those who inhabit light and darkness. On the fifth day, the birds and the fish. That is the inhabitants of the sky and sea. And on the sixth day, animals and humans. That is the inhabitants of the dry ground. The first three days, he's creating the realms. The next three days, he's creating the inhabitants within these realms. So in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Say good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Say the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Say good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Say the fifth day. I feel like you're tapering off a little bit. Let's, let's finish strong. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals each according to their kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Say good. good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Say, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Say, the sixth day. Now, if you had never heard this before, if this was your very first time, for all of its poetry imagery, at least listening to it with your Western 2021 ears on, it would have an unusual ring to it. But you need to understand that in the world of the Bible, this had a very familiar ring to it because it was written to sound like the world that they lived in. The world of the ancient Near East was a world completely shaped by polytheism, that is, the belief in many gods, and they had very elaborate, dramatic, poetic myths about how the world came to be. And it is clear when this account is compared against the myths of the people around them, the biblical account is clearly written to reflect these with the vivid imagery and the poetic structure. It was written to sound like the world in which they live, just like the songs we sang today are written to sound like the world in which we live. But more importantly than reflecting, it was written to contrast against these stories, to immediately stand out against a worldview that God's people were absolutely surrounded by on all sides, and it was a worldview that believed in a universe that was filled with an infinite number of gods. More gods in the universe than stars in the sky. And so right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it establishes an understanding of reality that is diametrically opposed to the world that is all around it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, having a bit of understanding about this cultural background of the ancient world is helpful. It's helpful for us, as we read it, to understand the questions that it was answering. This is also frustrating for us because it was not written against the background of our world. And so there are questions in our modern world that we are interested in, but the Bible does not give answers to it with the level of specificity that we would prefer. We have an interest in questions regarding how long exactly these days were in Genesis chapter 1, how all of this relates to geological dating and compatibility with theories of theistic evolution. And I'm not saying that there are not answers to these questions. I'm just saying that answering these questions were not high priorities for the biblical writer because those weren't questions that his world was asking. This was written to people who were surrounded on all sides by a world whose entire lives revolved around the idea that the universe was filled with endless gods who were engaged in constant conflict with each other. Drama and intrigue and backbiting and scheming and scandal, sexual escapades, violence, murder. It just, it sounds like a bad reality TV show. But they believed that all of this cosmic conflict and chaos because between these endless gods, somehow, out of all of this, our world came into being and was constantly being shaped and controlled by it. 
So when we begin reading the story in Genesis chapter 1, what does the word create tell us? Well, the Bible immediately begins to set the record straight. It doesn't matter if the whole world believes all these crazy stories about all these crazy gods. That's all a bunch of malarkey. The beginning of God's big story, the true story, is very, very different from the prevailing worldview. Here's how the one true big story begins. There is one true eternal God who is distinct from everything else in creation. You see, in the worlds of the Bible, the gods of the heavens and the forces of nature were fused together. So the sun was a god, the moon was a god. Every force of nature stood for a different deity that had to be dealt with in life. And these endless gods were represented by endless idols. And sacrificing to them to put these temperamental deities in a good mood was necessary to get them to give favorable conditions in the areas that they controlled. Very complicated. By the way, when the Bible comes back time and time again to the importance of one true creator God, I mean all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, most often when it mentions that God is the creator God, it is paired with a rebuke of idolatry. This preposterous, prevailing idea that anything else, the gods of our imagination, the work of our hands, the myths that have been handed down to us, this preposterous idea that anything else is God except God alone. God's covenant people in the Bible were insistently committed to this culturally radical idea that there is only one true God. And this one true God is completely distinct from everything else that exists. He is not an element of nature. He is not a piece that is within us. He is not the combination of all of us put together. Before there was anything else, this one true God, eternally, without beginning, uncreated, he alone existed. And this one true God called into existence absolutely everything else that exists out of absolutely nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a merism, by the way. It's a, it's a figure of speech in which two contrasting parts are used to indicate the whole. That is everything else in between. So somebody says, we searched high and low. That means we searched everywhere. We went from east to west. We went everywhere. East to west and everywhere in between. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that means and absolutely everything else that is in between. Nothing is excluded in this statement. And the Bible is repeatedly insistent upon this important piece of the story. Hebrews chapter 11 says the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Romans chapter 4 says he is the God who calls into being things that were not. Colossians chapter 1 says for by him all things were created both in the heavens and the earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created by him and for him. So God said Let there be light, and there was light. 
And let the waters in the sky separate from those upon the earth. Let dry ground appear. Let there be lights in the sky, sun, moon, and stars of night. Let the waters and skies be filled with living creatures. Let the land be filled with living creatures. And all of it was. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And so they were both male and female alike. God made it all. And he made it all good. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 concludes this way. Then God saw all that he made and it was very good. Now as we continue in this big story of God, there is much brokenness that is going to come into this thing called creation. This is no surprise to us. We see the world around us. We read the headlines. Clearly there is much in mankind that is not good. There is much in creation that is not good. Viruses that sweep across the globe. Hurricanes that sweep across the ocean. Droughts that sweep across whole continents. The Bible does not claim that everything in creation is as it ought to be. The Bible is crystal clear about the reality of brokenness. Something has gone terribly, terribly wrong in our world. We are just saying God didn't make it this way. He made it all good. He made it all to declare his own glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. All of God's creation, even through the brokenness, if we will only truly listen to it, if we will only honestly look, all of creation is praising the magnificence of the creator God from whom it has come. The last star in the furthest reaches of the universe, the tiniest flower that is reaching up towards the sky in the most hidden mountain meadow, the crashing waves of the ocean, a gentle breeze in the morning, a newborn cry, the breath that is in your very lungs. If you will only stop and listen, if you will only look, really look, All of this is proclaiming a symphony of unbroken praise to the one true creator God who has brought all of it into existence. He created all of it. And for this reason, he possesses and rules over all of it. Now, this was in radical contrast to the gods of the nations. Yahweh is no regional God who kind of has firm boundaries on his territory and his sovereignty. He's the Lord over everything. The wind and the waves, at his command, the sun arises. At his word, it stands still. He is Lord of all because he made it all. One true eternal God who is distinct from everything else in all creation, who has called into existence absolutely everything out of absolutely nothing. He has made it all good for his own glory, and thus it all belongs to him and is under his sovereign rule. This was all set against the myths of the ancient world about gods and demigods and colliding chaos. But no matter how many times people told them these myths, and no matter how many people told the lie. It was all still a lie. The myths of our world today are different, but still we have competing myths just the same. 
Ours happen to be about things like random mutation and biological accidents and colliding chaos. But no matter how many times we've been told to lie, no matter how many people tell the lie, it is still a lie. In the beginning, the truth is, God created the heavens and the earth and absolutely everything in between it. Of course, there might be someone who says, hey, I, I, I get it. This is kind of baked in to Christian doctrine, but honestly, just between you and me, how big of a deal is it? I mean, honestly, is it a deal breaker? Would it be that much different if we left this word out of the story? How critical is it? Historic Christianity would say that this is of first order in our faith. The earliest Christian creed that exists still to this day is what we call the Apostles' Creed, and it goes back to just the first century or two after Christ himself. It's the first of many attempts to simply express, in short, what it is that all Christians together believe. And to this day, the Apostles' Creed, it resonates and is repeated together by Christians around the world because it represents such a pure form, simple form, of what we can all agree on, must all agree on, in the faith. And before it says anything about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the cross, the church, the resurrection to come, we begin the Apostles' Creed by affirming together, we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator, of heaven and earth. This is how historic Christian faith begins. You can make the case from the early church that before you believe anything else, you must believe that God created the heavens and the earth. This is no second, third, fourth level truth for historic Christianity. I would say that the New Testament insists that this is of first order in our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, aren't you? Certainly one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible, defining what faith is and what faith has looked like across the ages in the lives of believing women and men, those who rightly belong to the hall of faith, who kept looking for the promise even against unthinkable odds in life. And we are called in this chapter to follow in their footsteps and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But this whole amazing chapter, the hall of faith, begins this way. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For this is what the ancients, those who have gone before, the great cloud of witnesses were commended for. So what is it specifically that we believe? Very next verse. Very first thing in the Bible's ultimate faith chapter. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. For all of the things in life that we take God at his word on, at the very top of the list, We are confident by faith that the universe, absolutely everything in it, was formed at God's command. And that's why beginning from this very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and repeatedly throughout the scriptures, we are commanded in dozens of different ways to come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord God, our maker. 
And I would contend that if it were possible for me right now today to take you to the throne of heaven, do you know that right now in heaven they are singing that same very creation song? How can I be so sure? Because when we get all the way to the very end of the book, we get to Revelation chapter 4, and the apostle is transported to the throne room of heaven. And and before the one who sits upon the throne, there are 24 elders, and there are seven spirits, and there are these four fantastic living beings, and myriads and myriads of angels, too many to count, and they are singing, proclaiming, shouting this song that is before him. And the song they are singing in the throne room of heaven says, you are worthy, our Lord. Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and they have their being. This is not a science question. This is a throne room of heaven before the very presence of God question. The great story begins in Genesis In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The great story ends in the throne room of heaven. You are worthy because you created all things by your will. And everything in between in this Bible story is of an unthinkably great and unbelievably good God by whom all things, including you and me, owe their very existence. It's a really big deal. Let me add one last thing to somebody who's listening to me today. You're listening to me today, and I know that you have no quarrel with anything that I've said so far. You're just not sure with everything you're going through right now how much all this really matters. You say, look, I'm I'm sold. I get it. This is important to the faith. I'll, I'll sign on the dotted line. I'm in. You just got to understand right now I got bigger fish to fry and I just don't know how much all this matters to me right now. My whole world is upside down at the moment. And I'm just holding on by a thread. I'm just trying to keep putting one foot in front of the other but you got to know that I'm just about on empty. What does this theological truth matter to me when right now, right here, I'm about ready to drop? And the prophet Isaiah would say, Not only does this matter to you, but especially this should matter to you right now. It should critically matter to you that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, again, it is arguably one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible. Certainly, it is the pivot point of the entire book of Isaiah where he begins to call out words of comfort to a broken and a bruised people who are desperate for rescue. And the prophet calls out the good news that every valley should be lifted up and every mountain should be brought low because God is coming. And like a shepherd, he will gather his lambs in his arms and he will carry them. But how can he pull all this off? When we've wandered so far and we've sinned so bad and we've lost so much and those against us are so many, how can he possibly turn our lives right side up again? But you remember who this is, don't you, the prophet says. He's the one who measured the waters of the oceans in the hollow of his hand and with that same hand he can measure the extent of the universe. Verse 21, he said, do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all of these. Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and his mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Before you get overwhelmed in the pain of what you're trying to stumble through right now, don't forget this is the creator God of the universe that we're talking about. He literally hung every last star into space and he calls forth every single one of them one by one. Hold on, slow down for a minute. He calls forth every star one by one. Never mind for a moment that he created all of them. Just exactly how long would that take for him to keep those straight and call them forth one by one? How many stars exactly are out there? Well, we don't know, of course. I mean, our greatest telescopes can't see them all. Our greatest computers can't calculate them all. But the very best estimate of the greatest scientists in the world is that the number of stars in the universe is about a billion trillion. Or in other words, that's one times 10 to the 21st power. How many stars is that? I mean, realistically, what would it take to keep track, even just once, of that many? Well, let's imagine just for the sake of illustration that you are going to devote yourselves to counting off all the stars in the sky one by one, just like it says God calls them out one by one. And for the sake of illustration, you're able to see them all and you're able to count off about one every second. One, two, three, four, five. So you'd be able to count off about 3,600 in an hour. If you kept at it for a 16-hour day, you'd be able to count off... 57,600 at the end of the day. In fact, if you devoted yourself for an entire year, I mean 365 days straight, no holidays, no vacation, no sick time, nothing, but 365 days straight, 16 hours a day, in one year's time, you would be able to count off 21 million stars. In fact, if you decided you were going to devote every single day of your life to this task in this way, 16 hours a day, and if you lived to be 100 years old, In your lifetime, you would be able to count off one by one two billion stars. And if your son likewise dedicated his entire life to this task, just like you did and your grandson did and then your great-grandson did and then your great-grandson did with five generations of utter dedication, together you would be able to count off ten billion stars in the heavens. So at that rate, How long would you have to keep at it to count them off one by one? Well, just to count them all off, never mind naming them, it would require 500 billion generations just to count them off one by one once. I'm just saying don't blow over this verse. Hey, take a minute. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? 
He's the one who brings forth the starry host one by one and calls forth each by name because of his great power and his mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. He does not lose track of one single star. It's a really, really, really big deal. Just that. So Isaiah continues. Since he created every last one of them, and he never loses sight of a single one of them, verse 27 says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded? By my God. Anybody here, anybody listening to me who would say, I'm feeling a little forgotten at the moment. Hello? Me down here going through a really rough time. Why do you say I'm neglected? Why do you say I'm forgotten? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or wearied. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to those who are weary. Anybody here who feels a little bit weary. He increases the power of the weak. Anybody here who feels a little bit weak. And that's not just because we're old and we're tired and worn out, because he says even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord, the Lord, the eternal, almighty creator God of everything that exists in the heavens and the earth, he has placed into position the most far-flung star on the edges of the universe. He has painted the colors on the petal of the tiniest mountain flower in the most hidden mountain meadow. He has scooped out the seas so deep we still haven't seen down to the bottom of them. He delicately knits together the tiny frame of every unborn child in their mother's womb so that his fingerprints are upon them for life. Creatures both great and small, wonders for a thousand generations still to be discovered. Yahweh spoke into existence. Every one of them. And never, not for a single second, has he or will he ever lose track of any of it. So then how could you possibly think that this God who has created you, this God who has called you by name, this God who loves you by heart, how could you possibly dream for a moment you have been forgotten by him? It's just not possible. So I know you're tired, and I know you're worried, and I know that you feel like you're just about ready to drop, but Isaiah says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Then he says, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Who are the ones who soar with wings like eagles? Who are the ones who run and are not weary? Who are those who walk and do not get tired? They are the ones who have put their hope in the creator God of the universe who has called them by name. Why does all this matter? For someone living in a COVID world, somebody just trying to keep their head above water in the midst of a global recession, somebody trying to keep their sanity with the kids still at home bouncing off every wall, for those trying to keep their mind in a world where it seems like everybody else is losing theirs. Why does it matter that God's big story begins with the word create? Because if this God is powerful enough to place every star in the sky and never lose track of a single one of him, 
then the same God can be trusted to never lose track of me as his child. I may not know everything that you're going through right now, and I may not have all the answers to your situation, but I know this much for sure. You are anything but forgotten. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired. His understanding no one can comprehend. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow weary and tired and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You are anything but forgotten. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. We kneel, realizing that you are the creator God of the entire universe, and all this is in a a drop in the bucket to you. But not only are you unbelievably great, you're unbelievably good. You call us by name and you love us by heart. And you follow us moment by moment. And your heart is moved with compassion toward us. Lord, honestly speaking, sometimes we get stuck in chapters that we don't like. In fact, I don't even know sometimes how they make sense. And yet we realize that your big story is beautiful from beginning to end. And with tension and release and drama and final resolution, it's a story that we're privileged to be a part of. I thank you that it starts with this incredibly comforting reminder that everything we see, everything we can't see, you, God, created it all. 